OTB AM, Ireland's only sports breakfast show, weekdays from 7.30 a.m., only on OTB Sports Radio. Live 24-7 on the OTB Sports app. The OTB Podcast Network. Oh, the shape that will get. You can all the fans there. Can we not knock this? It's a fact. I love playing mind games. I'm talking about facts. I always said if I was Aladicio, they'd probably say I was more of a tactical genius. The answer questions I had uh, religious, politics, uh, health, you know, sexual uh, problems. Look at his face! Just look at his face! None of you, except for those two, have done anything to justify the money that you earn. None of you, disgrace! And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Well, what a week that was. The Super League is dead and buried. It only last about, lasted about 48 hours or so. And I want to give a shout out to my boy, Jose Mourinho, because Monday and Tuesday, it really should have been about you. It should have been about you, but there were just bigger things happening in the world. And we didn't get a chance to give you a proper goodbye from Tottenham. End of call here. Welcome along to Team 33. We're going to be looking at Jose Mourinho tonight. But that's coming later, a little later on in the show. We have to talk about the Super League because it is the end of a week, the end of a, a crazy busy week for a lot of sports journalists out there. But the end seems to be the biggest end for the football administrators like Ed Woodward, who's gone from Manchester United. Who knows what's going to happen with Agnelli at Juventus and Florentino Perez, his monopoly over Real Madrid over the last couple of years might actually come to an end because of this. Colin Boog and Willow Callahan are on, are on the line with me. Lads, how are you getting on? Even better. This will seem like it was going to be a, a seismic week for football, regardless of whether it happened or not, because if it happened, then the Super League becomes a reality and the bigger clubs go off and do their own thing while the smaller clubs fend for themselves. But it almost seems like a bigger thing now that it's not happening because the question is, what happens to these big clubs now? What what do you do with Manchester United, Real Madrid to prevent them doing this again? Yeah, look, at the outset, I'd just like to say thank you to the 12 Rebel Clubs as someone who works in sports broadcasting. After a year of a pandemic where we were scratching for stories, there were almost too many stories to be had in that 48-hour period. And yeah, I mean, the fallout on this is going to be massive because every club got into this for different reasons. And I think for the three Spanish clubs in particular, and like it's fairly clear that you know Florentino Perez mentioned the 400 million or so that's been lost in revenue by Real Madrid. They're not able to get their stadium completed currently because of the financial impasse that they're at. So they've been playing at their B-team stadium this year, even in the Champions League. Atletico Madrid, I would imagine once they saw that Real Madrid and Barcelona, who already take the lion's share of the revenue from La Liga, had to get involved to have any chance of hanging on to their coattails and being able to progress the club. Barcelona, it's very well known, are already 1.2 billion in debt. And when you look at the Italian clubs, again, Juventus had to be looking at the revenue that the Premier League clubs were able to make with a huge amount of envy because they have dominated Serie A over the last almost 20 years now at this point. And despite the fact that Juventus are winning season on season, they've got an aging team, which is going to have to be regenerated at a big cost in the next few seasons. And I am sure that their management were looking at this as a potential silver bullet to get around the fact that Serie A is not going to be able to compete with the Premier League financially. Similarly, AC Milan and Inter Milan have fallen off a cliff in recent seasons and they've had a change in ownership. And their owners from America and from China, respectively, I think we're more than happy to get involved in what would be effectively a franchise system in playing games midweek. And I think that disconnect has been shown up. It's going to have a bigger fallout for some clubs than others. Uh, the two who are left standing as we speak currently, Real Madrid and Barcelona, possibly have uh, the biggest fallout to come from this, maybe with the exception of Liverpool. I'd be interested what Colin thinks about that too. But Barcelona almost let this cat out of the bag in terms of how long the negotiations were going when Josep Bartomeu was leaving his role in the autumn just gone and he announced that Barcelona had agreed to join the European Super League and mm-hmm. said how far advanced the project was. Joan Laporta came in and had spoken out against the idea of going for a European Super League and yet his club were still in a very lukewarm way joining as one of the 12 founder members. There's an argument you said to be said that if Laporta agreed for Barcelona to go in, the socios of that club, because it's a fan-run club, could easily show him the door after this. 
And I'm sure there was probably part of Laporta thinking, if we can bring in guaranteed revenue in the hundreds of millions, Leo Messi gets his new contract, the new camp gets its facelift, and we're able to regenerate this team mm-hmm. as well. Like so much of it isn't necessarily down to greed, but I think in some teams' cases, it was down to a desire and a need to actually keep up with the Joneses. But there's going to be a huge fallout for them. There's going to be a huge fallout for Florentino Perez. He has done everything possible to get money into Real Madrid in recent seasons, including their women's team being sponsored by Saudi Arabia, as bizarre as that might seem. But that's where we're at with this, and Liverpool particularly have seen the backlash. We saw on Wednesday John W. Henry putting out that video because fans were unhappy with the level of the apology that they received. Manchester United have not exactly covered themselves in glory in how they have not apologised for getting involved too. And I wonder how much there's going to be a breakdown in trust with fans. And for Liverpool particularly, where that club is you know, so built around being a working-class club, going right back to their shanky roots, it might seem a little bit twee from time to time, but it is a key tenant of how that club works. And it's going to be very difficult to rebuild those relationships. I think that's probably going to be the biggest fallout here. Yeah, for sure. And for those of you that missed the story, I don't know if anybody in the world missed the story over the course of the week, but essentially how it went was Sunday night, there was murmurs of this happening. The Manchester United, Real Madrid, um, Juventus and Barcelona were the team, or Liverpool rather, were the four teams that were driving this on. Man City and Chelsea were late to accept that they would be join, joining it. PSG, Bayern Munich opted out of it in, in the end. And eventually it was Man City and Chelsea that caused the domino effect of the dropout because Chelsea were the first team to pull out. But I think it's very telling the clubs that pulled out. Chelsea, owned by a Russian oligarch, never going to run out of money. Man City, owned by a Qatari group, never going to run out of money. Likewise with PSG not choosing not to do it. They're never going to run out of money. Liverpool, Manchester United are trying to catch up with Real Madrid and Real Madrid are trying to catch up with themselves because they've spent way beyond their means over the last couple of years. I think on John Henry's apology and the reason that I think it actually caused me to get a little bit more angry is that Liverpool and John Henry are a club that push this agenda of the magic knights in Anfield, the fan-run club, the people's club of Liverpool. When in actual fact, Liverpool have been driving people out of the area that Anfield has built for years now, for decades now. They have been buying up properties, forcing people out of their homes so they can progress the, the stadium without actually putting anything back into the into the community. Everton have been doing massive amounts of things for the local community in Liverpool and Liverpool have let their stadium and around rot over the last couple of years so they're pretending to be the good guys when in actual fact they're no different to what the Glazers are doing over Manchester United Column, avid Manchester United fan obviously we're no uh, strangers to this sort of thing with the Glazers and the last time something big like that happened a group of Manchester United fans left and founded their own club as a result is that going to happen again is this just same old Manchester United really I don't think anything will change, unfortunately. I think we're in a time capsule as we speak where there's a lot of emotion and some some bit of solidarity this week in the footballing world. But um, <clears throat> people have short memories. Like and uh, like if when, it, when we go back to playing now and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's had a very good second half of the season in charge of Man United. And if that continues and the results continue to improve and if they win the Europa League um, and they play in the Champions League next season, which they're now free to do um, there will be dissent about the Glazers and every time the Manchester United official Twitter account tweets there'll be the hashtag Glazers out but they won't you won't see any followers drop off and their total followers on top of Twitter and ultimately that means that the Glazers will win so there will be a lot of uh, bad will towards them it'll be at an all time high uh, right now and for the next few weeks and months but you remember that there, there were these protests in 2010 um, with the green and yellow scarves. And I remember AC Milan came to town and played in the Champions League and David Beckham was playing for Milan on what I think his second loan spell there. And after the match, the fans threw the, the scarves onto the pitch and he picked up one of them and wore it as he walked off the pitch, Beckham. It's a very powerful image. And 11 years on, the Glazers are still in charge. So I've been caught up with the events um, all week long like everybody has, like all of us. As Will said, it's been a great week for... To, to be working in this industry because it's non-stop news and it's great fun to cover and it's exciting. And uh, I, I definitely have been emotional. I mean, on Monday, I was um, way too down for someone who they don't care about, like, you know, 
that and I, and that can't be more down. Mm. And then I thought, geez, I, I thought I'm too old for this, like to feel this, you know, I, you know, it's a long time since I've used to cry regularly when United would lose matches in the late nineties and early nineties, because I couldn't understand how they lost matches. Didn't make any sense to me to becoming completely cynical with the whole thing. And then just enjoying watching any bit of decent football. But look, this is a long time coming and, and football has, I don't know about you two lads. I, I, it is interesting actually. And I, I am interested to hear from both of you because you work in football. Do you still enjoy matches? So I'm finding it quite tough to um, really appreciate matches in the last year, especially without fans and atmosphere and, and VAR and just waiting to find out if goals are actually legitimate. Mm. And well, well, VAR... I, I just appreciate the first touch now or, you know, some mm. good build-up play. I, I know I'm going slightly off topic there, but it, it culminates in my whole thinking that I think this is just the start of it. And I, I think that the, the new Champions League updates from 2024 is a version of this European Super League mm-hmm. and they're going to get it in through that way. Yeah. Yeah, well, well, VAR, VAR has definitely taken a bit of enjoyment out for me. But I think I, I was kind of at the position where if I wasn't working on, if I was work, working on football, I wouldn't be watching the Premier League anymore. That's, that's mm. where, where I stand. I, I take huge enjoyment in watching the League of Ireland and in following uh, Celtic and the SPFL. I know people kind of la- will laugh at that a little bit because Celtic are essentially the super club of the SPFL. And if they, them and Rangers decided to up and leave out of there, then what, what would be stopping them? But I just, I, I don't think we understand fan culture enough in this country to understand what this actually means to people because we don't have a fan culture in this country. People don't attend the League of Ireland matches the same way as they, they do in, in England to their, their local clubs. This, like, There are many people that do go, go to League of Ireland regularly and hold season ticket holders, and that's great, but we don't have enough of that um, to understand fully the impact that this has. We're talking about people who, if you introduce themselves, you to them and ask them to tell you something about them, the first thing that they would say would be, my name's John, I'm a Manchester United fan. That It's their personality. The club means that much to them. And I think we're at the stage now, we're at a critical point, and I've been mulling this over for the last couple of couple of days. Like The, the, the football clubs do not need these fans. They, they don't. And that's why they do. They don't need the match-going fans. They don't need the, the, the local to go in week in, week out. Money-wise, they don't need them. But the product suffers massively as a result of losing these fans. Look at what Old Trafford has become since the Stratford end has is more or less the only part of the stadium now that has regular fans. Anfield, Liverpool would not be able to market the great European nights at Anfield if it did not have the fans who are there week in, week out providing that atmosphere. If that is if Anfield becomes a plastic stadium with only rich tourists coming into it then the product is weakened and ultimately you would be you would end up with a product that resembles nothing that made it great in the first place nothing that made it this global brand in the first place so i just don't know if it would be sustaining enough i don't know what will if will you want to jump in on this yeah look i think um what's been interesting is we're almost feels like we're at a certain amount of a crossroads because of the debates that have been sparked by what's happened over the last week and on the one hand this could potentially mobilize your exactly when dimensions you know someone who has got their season ticket passed down from their grandparents down through their parents and to themselves and that they've been match going fans for many years and in england i think that's far more rooted than it is in europe and there's a culture in england of going to away games too which just isn't there on the continent it goes entirely differently to how florentino perez sees the future of football i remember when he first spoke about the idea of a european super league about three or four years ago and the idea wasn't even necessarily to play this midweek in the way that the champions league is played he actually envisaged this idea as being let's put this on at times that are actually quite accommodating for markets elsewhere and the money that we can bring in and the viewership that we can bring in will come from Asia and from America where there's big populations and potentially pay-per-view companies that will be willing to sell the idea of Real Madrid playing against Manchester United at three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. And almost the feeling at that point was that they would go with the domestic leagues midweek and because Real Madrid and Barcelona are so big, everyone else in La Liga would roll over and they would happily accommodate these teams, you know, playing their super matches during the week. 
So the way that they see it, and even you saw Florentino Perez say this week as well, that he would be happy enough for games to be reduced back from 90 minutes to 80 minutes. And it's about appealing to a younger audience. These, unfortunately, and this is kind of the depressing part, if you go to any of the social media accounts of the clubs where they've put up their apologies during the week, how many of the messages underneath are announce Mbappe, set by Haaland, by Messi, as opposed to being annoyed like the match-going fan would be? Yeah. What they feel their clubs have absolutely disrespected them and in many ways betrayed them because these conversations have been going on for months at a time when there was a pandemic. Like, let's remember, Arsenal sacked Gunasaurus as part of this. You know, Liverpool and Spurs wanted to use UK government money to furlough people who were working in the mm. club. Like, you're talking about the genuine people who keep the ground going, the, you know, kitchen staff that are there. These people were going to be put on minimum payments during a pandemic by clubs who have too much money to know what to do with because they want to have enough money to sign players like Mbappe. It's almost like the illness of modern football all coming to a head at the same time and there's no way these 12 clubs would have pushed this if they knew the fans were going to be in the stadiums because you would have had what happened outside Stamford Bridge on Tuesday night happen inside the ground if Mm -hmm. these teams had decided to do so and I think particularly with the six teams in England they would have faced absolute war if they tried to announce this with the fans around yeah that's that's the slimiest thing about this is that they knew. They know that this is wrong. They know the fans would, and that's again. This is John Henry's statement coming back, and he's like, "Oh, we 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 listen to you as fans. We always respect your opinion." No, you don't. Like, if you really did, you wouldn't have done it at a time where fans could not come out and give their opinion. He listened that's to Amanda at a time that, that it seemed that the fans might turn up at Anfield and yeah. cause trouble. He, he also, he, yeah, he also listened to the fans last time, as you said, they tried to furlough staff in the middle of a pandemic. Billionaires running these they're they're toys essentially Colin I do want to get your thoughts is Manchester United become going to become a franchise do you think yeah I would say by the time we are all retired if we ever get to retire I would say that you good chance that United won't be predominantly at least based at Old Trafford I would say Mm-hmm. Stay. I think that was it, that it, was it, that it, was the that was the fear when the Glazers took football club off the badge. Yeah, but for the majority of people, that that will still be fine. Like, I mean, that's the, that's what really worries me about this. Like, and we're still in. I'm jumping ahead a few weeks. You see, I, I'm thinking of what it's going to be like in a few weeks. And my biggest concern is that this is going to die away completely, and that mm-hmm. there'll be another new story. Like, and. um that's what that's what really is upsetting about this, I think. Like, like there was a few things. Like, I did have a few doubts when it all came through. I mean, I honestly thought that it was definitely going to happen to Super League because they launched a website and they had all their socials set up. And I thought this would be incredibly embarrassing if they have to backtrack here. Um, but then there was two things that stood out for me. It was like, well, where's the finance coming from here? Because JP Morgan are um, going to going to put some sort of financial backing into it, but then who's going to broadcast it? So that was one thing I thought, well, this mightn't happen. And then the second thing was, these five um, invited guests, or however they termed it on their website, I mean, how how is that determined? And then after a season, if they're relegated, where are they relegated to? Is it into the ether to float in space? And then how do you get promoted to be one of those five? And presumably it would be the top 20 most financially viable clubs in the world that would be in the league. So I thought they don't have enough detail there. So this might be a bit of a ruse, but they thought that they could do this. Like, mm. and uh, it's such an insult, you know. <laughs> it's it's so insulting um, as a fan. It's just unbelievable, uh, and it'll be a great documentary. The, the, these two and a half days of madness, because I can remember every hour from Sunday early evening to Tuesday night. I remember mm. all of it. I don't think I'll forget that for a long time because all of it was kind of where were you and what were you doing moments. And in terms of United becoming a franchise, yeah, I think it's it's almost inevitable because the Glazers are valuing the club at four billion. So there's not going to be any um, community hero who's going to buy it for four no. billion, is there? No, and there was actually I, we spoke to uh, some of the guys from T4 Football a couple of weeks ago, and they actually did a a really good video off a breakdown asking the question, are Man United too valuable to sell? Because literally nobody can afford to buy them at this point. 
and the Glazers will never get as much money as they value the club at. So it's it's almost you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. I see the worry for me for the super super league was, I mean, aside from the fact that it's obviously like ridiculous that you get in on the merit of being rich, um, was that where does where does that stop? It's just a a repeating cycle again after a couple of years when Man United, Real Madrid, Barcelona, and I don't know, let's say Liverpool realize that they are the biggest pullers within the Super League. And why should Tottenham and Arsenal and Inter Milan get the same amount of money as we're getting? Because we bring in all the money. We bring in all the fans. And then Real Madrid, Barcelona, Man United and Liverpool go off and, and form their own, again, Super Super League. The I don't know, the, the envision that uh, was a Platini or one of those had that we'd be playing intercontinental football. Like that's, is is that what the intercontinental football is going to be? These four clubs roaming around like the Harlem Globetrotters playing games in, in Texas and in, in China and all over the world. Like it, that's essentially where I think these guys are leading this, this thing. That's, that's oh. where I see it. I've no doubt, and particularly if the group stages had played out in the way that this was presented on Sunday night, I think it was inevitable within a few seasons that games would have been played in the Gulf and games would have been played in Asia and in America. They already kind of had this set up in a way. Remember the uh, Guinness series that they used to play over the summers where there wasn't a tournament on, where they would play in effectively what were like mini conferences where some teams would be playing on the West Coast in America, some would be East Coast, some were in Australia and some were in Europe. And that was already there as an idea that the clubs would play friendlies in an interconnected tournament. And then you see little things that have happened in recent seasons, like the Italian Super Cup has been played in Hong Kong. Uh, they went to Saudi Arabia two years ago to play the Spanish, what was effectively the last four now of their Super Cup. They've played one season in Morocco too. Like they've already kind of tested the waters, some of the leagues in doing this to see if they can open up markets elsewhere. And like, it's kind of, again, this is a sickening way to look at football where it's taking football as far away from the fans as you possibly can but you're doing it because you can go to a new market and potentially sell more jerseys or sell more product. And like even, do you remember a few seasons ago, Barcelona were going to play Levante. I think, was, was that going to be in, um, possibly in Qatar, be, I think? I think was it was going to be in Qatar, yeah. Yeah, the idea was that at least it was going to be played in the Middle East. And again, this was about fostering relations between Spain and Qatar. And now you see money flowing in from, you know, in recent seasons, Qatar Airways into Barcelona. The, you know, Saudi Arabia have been, setting up pipelines with Florentino Perez and at the same time sponsoring their women's team. Like all of these little relationships would have led at some point to European Super League games being played abroad. But what surprised me lads most about this was how unpolished everything was in terms of no slick press release put out by one single body. You were waiting and everyone was on Twitter at half 11 looking at the different club accounts to see who was going to put something up first. They didn't put them up in a coordinated way. It didn't feel like a set press release that went out across the clubs. The banner and the uh, logo were absolutely horrific. Like I think it was Gavin Cooney from the 42 that pointed out very nicely that it looks like um, the printer ran out of ink at some point drawing along the logo. As such was the unprofessionalism of it. And like the fact that this was announced through leaks as opposed to you know some kind of special presentation where you've got Florentino Perez as the architect of this standing up and delivering it like that didn't happen everything went out really piecemeal and I think for the cynical among us we'll start to wonder if those 12 clubs were just trying to push the boat a little bit 24 hours before UEFA were due to make the announcement about 2024 and that this was a way of getting Shefferin to say hey exactly like he did if you say you're sorry we know that we need you 12 clubs to make the Champions League an interesting prospect come back in to our embrace and we will reform the Champions League for you Mm -hmm. Do, yeah, you, that, do you think that, sorry, Linda, do you think that, right, to play devil's advocate here, that Florentino Perez had a point in that matches are too long for young people to pay attention to? Um, it's like the T20 of cricket, isn't it? Like, I mean, you're going to get people who are, like, particularly interested in, like with cricket, and someone will watch test cricket, but it's a hard sell to say to somebody, hey, sit down and watch 50 overs, and that's why 2020 started. It was there for the short attention span. It was something you could watch over a few hours, and you could just get in and out. Similarly, like, Florentino here is basically saying, let's cut this back, let's get some more ads in at halftime, and let's finish things out quicker so people can follow the games along on Twitter. I reckon you're a football fan who really likes football, will more than happily sit down and watch the traditional 90 minutes. But maybe those who are thinking about playing FIFA Ultimate Team while they're watching a game, maybe 80 minutes is better suited to them. I don't see the uh, the timing going back, though. No, I like... I, yeah. 
I don't know. I like. I I think we underestimate the attention span that people have. Like people, people. There's this assumption that young people have short attention spans just because you know they like things quick and fast and um you know like TikTok videos are shorter and all that. They're good. They also like good value films and Netflix and binge watching things for three hours. It's not you that know? they have short attention spans, and which suggests that they're not intelligent enough it's not that it's that there's so much content to consume now that how could a product keep the attention of people for an hour and a half now especially if that product isn't exciting like people move on from a video straight away if it doesn't do it for them in the first few seconds so it's not that but like the most common behavior now in the first world to watch football i would say is you throw it on and you watch a few minutes of it and then the ball goes out of play for a throw or someone goes down injured and you pick up your phone and you scroll through Twitter and you're not really watching. But the broadcasters won't care because it's still on. So it still counts mm-hmm. as a viewer. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, I, maybe I'm old fashioned, but... I think as well, Ender, though, that Florentina Perez would have been extremely aware that traditional broadcasters wouldn't have been able to afford the type of money that the Super League was talking about for broadcast rights. And... I would be shocked if they went to JP Morgan and JP Morgan were getting ready to underwrite a certain amount of money if they weren't able to say we've got a commitment from a broadcaster to actually put this money in because the house of cards would have come down even quicker than the clubs uh, pulling out if the financial deal hadn't been there. I would have been shocked if this wasn't broadcast on Facebook or Amazon. Like, I think there's no way, and that's why you had Sky and BT up in arms and more than happy to have their pundits on, you know, saying how this was the end of the world because BT and Sky knew that they wouldn't be able to compete with the rights arrangement around this. Yeah. And there are companies who are already paying the best part of a billion quid to broadcast the Premier League. And in BT's case, you know, hundreds of millions on top of that to broadcast the Champions League. If this was going to be like a four billion deal, you're only really looking at streaming services who would have been able to do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... The the one thing that I'm just confused by is though, like if this was a ploy, what was the end game? Because either they completely overpay, overplayed their hand and messed this up or there's a long, long way to go in this story that we're not quite seeing yet and it hasn't exposed itself yet. Because if you look at this now, these clubs have no leverage. What's their leverage now? Because they tried it, it didn't work and... Now the leverage is the ball is in UEFA's court. The, you know, the, the end game was revenue. It's, it's just guaranteed revenue. That's all. They're a business. I mean, it, owners treat it as a business. They're not a fan. And how could you expect them to be? Like, like at the same time, like we're all going in heavy on this, and rightly so. And then from their point of view, I completely understand why they tried to do this. Totally. No, I, 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 I know that, but I mean, like the day they, they must have. Like, I, I just don't think this couldn't have been a PR thing where they launched it and they meant for it never to work. No, I think you're right. Yeah, I think because you're right. I mean, yeah. they lose all of their credibility. They lose all of anything that they had, any power over UEFA that they had, they've lost now. So, Well, they did strategize, I think, because as Will said earlier, okay, they knew the Champions League reform was just around the corner. So they said, well, mm. we'll do this and then we'll fall back on the Champions League, which is exactly what they're doing now. So, But they know, those clubs know that UEFA needs them in the Champions League as well. So they can still play their hand. They just won't make as much money now. Yeah. Uh, but in the case of Real Madrid, they could be really in trouble. Yeah. All right. That is the European Super League. We will wrap up our coverage for the week on that. If you want to look back at some of the great stuff that we did over the course of the week, there's loads of stuff from Philippe Auclair saying that Philippe, uh, Florentino Perez should be thrown out of football to Marcotti explaining the situation at Juventus and how that works with Seferin because, of course, Agnelli is actually his son's godfather and I think they're, they're brothers-in-law as well. So there's that and loads of really great reaction from great pundits as well. Andy Mitten on Ed Woodard and why that he, he has chosen to step away and, and the decision that or the events leading to that decision as well. So that's all available in the OTB Sports app as well. We'll be back again after the break talking about the man Jose Mourinho. Team 33. This is OTB Sports Radio. Hi, welcome back to Team 33 and a call here with you. If you want to get involved in the conversation tonight, you can text us on 53106 or tweet us at Team 33. That's all spelled out in words. We were talking about the European Super League before the break, but it's time to talk about the main man, the man who got no attention this week. And I can't tell whether he would be absolutely delighted by that or absolutely furious by that. And that is Jose Mourinho, who has been sacked by Tottenham. It came around about Monday afternoon when everyone was getting really into the Super League, what's happening. So it kind of went under the radar. And we on the show did a series on the all or nothing, the Spurs all or nothing. And it ended up being 
nothing for Jose Mourinho because he didn't even get a chance to lead them to the Carabao Cup. What a what a what a poor Jose, poor Jose. The first the first club that he hasn't been allowed win a trophy with, Colin. Uh, the third after Benfica and Unai Deleira, but that was they were his first two managers managerial positions. And at the second one, he actually did very well and then moved on to Porto. But absolutely, he's won a trophy. Ever since he's become famous and made himself famous at Porto, he's won something. Um, and more than one trophy at each club. Um, he's six days away from possibly winning another, which is, yeah, I mean, that really was booting it in. But I was looking back today, lads, the, the date of the last three episodes that we covered from All or Nothing, which was the 17th of September, 2020. And they had had a terrible start to the season. They had lost to Everton in the first day of the season and they looked, they looked shocking. And Deli Alli was uh, taken off at half-time and basically never played again. And then three days after that recording, they beat Southampton 5-2 at St. Mary's Stadium when Sonny Hung-Min and Harry Kane um, absolutely ripped Southampton apart and then proceeded to rip loads of teams apart and they were top of the table in November briefly. And then it all just came crashing down spectacularly. And... Um, you know, it lasted 17 months and I feel that this tenure will be completely forgotten about in five years' time to the point where I'd be like, Jesus, remember Mourinho managed Spurs because mm-hmm. it's gone like that. And, um, I, I, you know, it, very simply, I, you know, who has he improved, like, since he's managed, you know? And um, he, he's just cast aside the, the most creative players and Son and Kane kept Spurs going in spite of what Mourinho was doing. And... Uh, it was a weird part to me as a, as a United fan that I, I first of all just knew this was going to happen at Spurs. I'm like, I'm not being smart there. We all knew this. And secondly, um, it was kind of like, I, you know, there was a feeling of like, I told you so, like, this, of course this would happen. Have you, did you see what happened at United? Why would this work at Spurs? And uh, look what happened. But yeah, the fact that he was barely mentioned at all on Monday, I don't think he'll be happy with that end because you weren't sure. I don't think he'll be happy. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one because, like, yeah, you had people saying that it was about, you know, the Super League and it, this, it had nothing to do with the fact that he had uh, fallen out with loads of players and not done nearly as well as he had hoped with this this squad. Um, but really and truly, this was, it, it's, it, it's actually kind of laughable now for Daniel Levy because he sacked Jose and paid him out all the money in the hope that this European Super League would be bringing in loads of that and now they're they're not so absolutely delighted for Daniel Levy who doesn't come off well in the all or nothing Spurs dock at all well this just say, it seemed inevitable like I, I think we, we all knew we, we, this day would come we did it's come pretty much a year ahead of schedule usually the Mourinho model is comes in new manager bounce starts to change things around, wins a trophy somewhere in the first two seasons. Usually it's a League Cup. And then in the third season, things start to turn because he starts to fall out with players and the results start to drop. He didn't even get the full kind of first season and hasn't got the full second season. It's 17 months spread across a pandemic, which makes it even more unusual. The biggest disappointment for me, because obviously we really enjoyed watching the nine episodes of the documentary and chatting about them on Team 33, is that the Amazon cameras weren't around for the last few days. I mean, can you imagine what the 48 hours must have been like between, say, Saturday evening, particularly when it seems that Mourinho had fallen out with players and there were plenty of reports in the papers, to the Super League being announced, to then Jose Mourinho being let go, it would have been some damn good television if that had actually happened. But it seems to me that the Super League had nothing to do with this, despite the rumours that he was refusing to take training or he was against the Super League, so therefore he downed tools. We've had consistent stories in recent weeks about the Spurs dressing room being unhappy about Mourinho's methods. They seem to be very unhappy, particularly after his comments after some of the games. Remember after the Newcastle game, he was basically saying, look, you know, it's the same manager. I'm still a good manager, but these players are letting me down. And the reality is that the results for the last 13 games have not been good enough. If you take their league form over the last dozen, they're, I think, third from bottom on the form table. And at a time when the top four has almost felt like who doesn't want to be in the top four this season because even Leicester and West Ham have been dropping points in recent seasons and Spurs have been messing up when the opportunities have afforded themselves to get in there. I would imagine that's been Spurs' biggest concern. I was shocked that they sacked him six six days before a cup final. I really thought that they were going to just say, look, right, Jose, go out there, win one single game. And like Mourinho's got a decent record against Guardiola, you're thinking maybe he can just stop City from playing on Sunday and they win a trophy, and then maybe you let Mourinho go at the end. The, the one thing I did wonder, and a few 
people kind of speculated on this was maybe it was cheaper to get rid of Mourinho before the cup final because there was a concern that if they won, there might have been some kind of clause in his contract that it would have been more expensive to get rid of him or maybe it triggered an extension if they were to win. That's been speculated. It's purely based on what the newspapers have been saying over the last few days. But the reality seems that this is going to be quite an expensive managerial change. So I wonder who Spurs have in mind because Ryan Mason is going to be in charge for the rest of the season. It's a free hit for him. If he loses the cup final against City... No one's going to really hold that against him. If he doesn't get into the top four, it doesn't matter. If he achieves one or the other, he becomes a hero straight away. I wonder, do Spurs have someone in mind for this summer? Brendan Rodgers. And that brings the question, will Brendan Rodgers really leave Leicester to go to Spurs? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes, he would. He Because he's like, listen, uh, obviously I'm bringing a little bit of bias into this, but I'm also... (laughs) I'm also... I'm also bringing some experience into this. And I again, I I rate Brendan Rodgers very, very highly when it comes to his managerial ability. But that man has a ruthless intensity and a ruthless ambition about him that he will absolutely up and leave Leicester City if he thinks that Tottenham is a better opportunity for him to progress his career. Mm, and um, I guess if you're looking across Europe, who's available? Well, Nobody Julian really. The, Julian, the, Julian Nagelsmann likely going to Bayern Munich next year, especially with what's going on at, at their club at the minute. Not necessarily, they're not necessarily happy. The uh, relationship between the director of football seems to have fallen apart with um, uh, Hansi Flick. Hansi Flick, sorry, forgot his yeah, name. He's gone, yeah, he's yeah. So that 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 relationship seems to have sort of fallen apart a bit so it'll be interesting to see one thing about this Mourinho right I, I have a theory about Mourinho I want to bounce it off you he is the new he's the big Sam now of the European super clubs he's the guy that people will go to and trust to bring in because he's got a track record now relatively speaking so Big Sam's being successful in terms of his what he's expected to do and that's keep clubs up Mourinho is known as a trophies man and he's made himself that with his talk and the fact that he's won trophies at every uh, every club he will bounce around big clubs in Europe now on the promise that he will win a trophy and he probably will come in and win a trophy like he like he probably won it would have won the Carabao Cup this weekend and that'll be him. He'll, he'll be happy out, get get a payout at the end of every season and be happy out the way he is until he gets that international job and then he'll go on and win the World Cup. Yeah. Speaking of trophies, if Ryan Mason wins on Sunday, would that be the highest profile trophy a manager has won in their first ever first team managerial position? In their first ever match? Hmm. Yeah. He'll be, I, he'll I would be imagine... A hero I would as their first match, definitely, I'd say. Like, I can't imagine Absolutely. there's, there like there can't there can't be too many managers that have that have taken over before a final. Yeah. David Moyes won the Community Shield in his first match. Manchester United manager, <laughs> <laughs> and everyone knows that's a big trophy. Sorry, I had a point there. I just got, yeah. got to that by Ryan Mason. Yeah, Mar- yeah, it's not a bad shout. The Big Sam one. I mean, it's funny because when you say that, and I'd say there'll be a few comments in this now, will be like, Big Sam, he wishes, uh, Adardici, like, but. With Mourinho, um, my theory is that he's been a broken man since he left Real Madrid because the players had no respect for him because he never played. So Iger Casillas and Sergio Ramos were, just wouldn't listen to him. It was the same when Rafa Benitez went there. And um, he became incredibly cynical afterwards because the Spanish media were ruthless with him, as they often are with managers. And when he came back to Chelsea, he was the peaceful one. And what was the term he used in his first press conference back? Um, I think it was, or was it the calm one or the happy one, something like that? It's the happy one, yeah. The happy one, yeah. And uh, I know he won the league again; he did very well there. But there, it was just a different Mourinho. Mm. And I think ever since then, even though he has been successful, he really has. There's a thing where he he just lost that spark and he lost the passion for what he does. I think, and I'm not just saying that because of what's actually happened at every club since, and he literally has had three jobs since and they've all ended disastrously where he's gone out of nowhere he's just gone and uh, I think it's his demeanour and he's just I, I do think he enjoys management and he just longs for those days where he was uh, revolutionary like I mean I remember when Inter Milan went to Chelsea his Inter in the Champions League 
and when Sky Sports had the Champions League coverage and they were just fawning all over Mourinho and he went around with this glint in his eye and he had this smile because he was at his peak with Inter really because what he did there um, mm-hmm. and I miss I, I miss that Mourinho I think we all kind of do and this new Mourinho is um, it's just it's kind of like his twin brother who is also very talented but doesn't have the same spark as his twin brother does and I think that does leave him now in terms of, you were saying Big Sam, I would call that a football consultancy role, which I think is what he will be and he'll be for hire. And he'll probably come in at this, maybe he, instead of Allardyce coming in like halfway through a season, Mourinho will get probably the full season and then he might leave. But ultimately, I think he's destined for the Portugal job. Mm. And, I, and I'd be interested to see that version of Mourinho. Yeah, you've, you've robbed a phrase from Mourinho when he came in and said that to Dele Alli, that question was he... His his twin brother that wasn't quite as talented. I, I do I do agree. I think Mourinho has lost a bit of his charisma. Just that That's little it, bit yeah. of the little bit of like you know confidence, cockiness, arrogance that was lighthearted and happy yeah. when and he first there. came. Like if you look at if you look at look at Mourinho when he first came, and this is why people loved him as well when he first came to Chelsea. He was this you know really handsome well-dressed, well-groomed Portuguese lad who was smart, funny, and really like willing to stick the boot into opponents. Whereas now he's just that little bit grayer, the, the smile doesn't appear as often, and it's more just sour arrogance, annoyance, doesn't yeah. want to be there. I think, some, I think some of that, lads, comes from the fact that he is a serial winner, though. I mean... We've got to the point, particularly since well, around 2012, 2013, where both Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola have moved past him in terms of achievement. And I'm sure that it's hurt Jose Mourinho quite a bit to watch Zinedine Zidane win successive Champions League trophies with Real Madrid and to have watched Ancelotti win the Champions League with Real Madrid as well. Like, there's no doubt that that hurts Mourinho. I would say he would love, and I'm sure he'd have a wonderful PowerPoint presentation ready to go to Bayern Munich if they would talk to him about the job potentially, because he would love to be able to say that he's won the league in Spain, Italy, Germany, and in England. And he would probably see that as a particularly unique achievement, which would be up there with the managers that I just spoke about a moment ago. I think there's still fire in Mourinho if the if a club get him in. And I think he has that proven track record over the last 20 years. The concern would be that if any club now at this point is deciding that they want to go for a project where they're building a legacy. You would want Jurgen Klopp or Pep Guardiola ahead of getting Jose Mourinho at this point. They've become the two managers that you'd want to have in place. Particularly, I think, the job that Jurgen Klopp has done with Liverpool in recent seasons, this season's disappointment notwithstanding, to have won a Champions League and to have won a league with the raw materials that he had at Liverpool is probably the managerial achievement of the last 10 seasons or so. And like, you can't really argue against Pep Guardiola's CV over the last, what, now 13 seasons that he's been involved in management. Like, he probably needs to win a Champions League with Man City to show that he can get a team to the absolute apex of European football that doesn't involve Lionel Messi or Barcelona. But still, if you consider the kind of consistency of performance and the trophy collecting that he's done between Barcelona, Bayern Munich and Man City, it's a very impressive legacy. And I would say it hurts Mourinho because Mourinho wants to be remembered as the best manager. Like his ego played up massively to the idea of going to Manchester United. He wanted to replace Alex Ferguson at the time. And I'm sure he was somewhat perplexed that David Moyes got that job. And similarly, I'm sure he was sickened that Pep Guardiola got the Barcelona job ahead of him when he interviewed for it back in 2008. These are the kind of legacy gigs that Mourinho wanted along the way. He's no problem putting a noses out of joint. But I think when he finished his career, it will have hurt him that, A, he wasn't there at the right time at Manchester United. He didn't get the Barcelona job. And these managers have moved ahead of him. And I'm sure whatever demeanor he has, these must eat away at him at night. Mm -hmm. Just to finish up then, he's going to be a World Cup winning manager though, isn't he? With Portugal? With anybody. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, we painted this picture of him. He's like um, Christopher Walken at the start of that Fat Boy Slim video where he's in the mansion, he's just sitting down in the big chair and he's just his head down. And people around him are saying, Jose, you should be delighted with life. Like, look what you've achieved. And he says, yeah, but they don't appreciate me. They don't know how good they had it with me. And I think that would be, I mean, I, I, I believe he's not a drinker. He, he doesn't go to the pub. But if he did, he would be that old man in the corner and he would talk about the second half of his career when people around him say, would you not tell them what you did in the first half of your career? And he said, but it doesn't matter because nobody appreciated it in the end. I mean, I really think Madrid broke him. And I, and, I, and I think he arrived at United three years too late. I think if he did get that 2013 spot, 
I think he would have been so angry at the treatment in Madrid that he would have come back with a bang to a league that he knows he's loved in. And I think he really could have continued on from Ferguson and done something in about two or three years and then left. And then someone else could have come in. So, look, hindsight's a wonderful thing. But, I, you know, if I was around Mourinho, I would say you were one of the best ever. You know, enjoy that. But maybe Will's right. Maybe he's something else in him. I'm just, I'm not sure. I think he's I would think. I would think as well how much lads and he tried to play it off at the time the spat that he had with Xavi might play into his mind a little bit too where Xavi obviously doing it from a Barcelona versus Real Madrid perspective was making the point that Jose Mourinho has won all of these trinkets along the way but the one thing that nobody will remember about Mourinho is the type of football that he played it's not like the people are going to remember fondly like say the Cruyff dream team or Arrigo Sacchi's AC Milan or Pep Guardiola's Barcelona of the last decade or you know any of these great teams or even Klopp's Liverpool who played fantastic football and won trophies and won the hearts and minds of people where they remembered as one of the great clubs. Xavi's point was people remember that Inter Milan had a particularly good season where they won a treble. They'll remember that Chelsea had a record points total in winning the Premier League but no one's really going to remember the type of football that Jose Mourinho played. Yeah, I think that's fair enough because that Chelsea team were amazing though. Uh, absolutely. Oh yeah, they, oh, totally underrated and played some of the best uh, counter-attacking football that you'll ever see. Uh, like I think Xavi was being unfair and I think Xavi looks at everything through a prism that's about beautiful football in a way that he sees it. While there's yeah. a lot more ways to enjoy football than maybe tiki-taka. But I, I just kind of wonder whether um, that plays any role in Mourinho when he looks back in his career as well though. Is that, will we ever say that there was a quintessential way that... Jose Mourinho played the team, played teams because there's always this idea that it's park the bus and mm-hmm. it's Mourinho getting a result by putting the dead ball up as opposed to winning with any kind of style or flair, really. See, but, and this is the final point I'll make on Mourinho and this Tottenham side is that one thing that this Tottenham side really defined was giving away leads. And that's, that's, why I, that's when I was starting to worry about Mourinho because Mourinho teams never give away leads. They mm. never like the defining uh, factor of that uh, that second return to Chelsea off uh, Mourinho was they would take a two 0 lead and they would win that game two 0 They would they would go ahead they destroy teams for the first thirty forty minutes go two 0 up and then that would be it that would be the game over no point in watching the rest of it and you you just couldn't see that with the teams that he were he was coaching since and I think that's whether it's the culture of football players in general that has changed or the fact that you know the game has moved on since and Mourinho hasn't moved with it it's that's going to be the legacy I think Mourinho's left can you uh, say something on that end when it comes to players right I know we said at the outset that you know there's been plenty of rumours about him falling out with players mm. something I always find intriguing about Mourinho though and I did love this image that he was on Instagram all day on Monday and was just like saving the videos and the clips to put him onto his Instagram stories where, you know, his former players, particularly Harry Kane and a few others, put up tributes to him. Is that a lot of Mourinho's ex-players and particularly people who you'd imagine have got big egos and could fall out with a manager seem to love him. Like Zlatan Ibrahimovic always speaks about how good Jose Mourinho was to work under, had no problem with the fact that Mourinho was happy to sell him. You look at like, say, players who cried when he got that Real Madrid job you know, like Lucio, and I think it was uh, Matarazzi was like in actual tears mm. at the club bus. You can see how much Harry Kane actually respects him. And if you're going to say any player that improved in Spurs during the time, and it's difficult to get more percentages out of him, you could argue that Harry Kane's numbers when he hasn't been injured over the last 17 months have been insane. I would I would go one step further, and I think there's a certain type of character that loves Jose Mourinho. And if you look at who they are, it's the best players in the team. Mm. It's, yeah. the, it's, yeah. it's Harry Kane, it's John Terry, it's Frank Lampard. It's the players who he wanted to win trophies, who, who who would win him the trophies and who wanted to win the trophies and knew what it took to win them. And it comes into that whole factor of Mourinho really wants you to die for him on the pitch. And the best players will do that. The ones that won't follow along are the ones that ultimately lead to it falling apart. So it's largely down to Mourinho's attitude largely down to the way he treats the players but I also do think the players who don't have that mindset do play a role in it as well mm. yeah it's the alphas the alphas respond to them mm. yeah. and, maybe, the alpha. and maybe, yeah, maybe they're not as many as them now for various reasons that that, that aren't all necessarily negative either and mm-hmm. uh, he had yeah he had a great spell where he, he made so many people happy but Will makes a good point so many former players love him because he ultimately improved their CV tenfold and made them even richer because they, he, they were like, look what I've won. And his legacy is not the football, it's the CV. 
I think, like he won't he won't care that he didn't play good football. Well, it's like he said to Harry Kane and the All or Nothing documentary. You're yeah. already a great player. I'm going to make you a winner. That's he, he, he that, nearly did. He nearly did. did. Nearly did. Six I'm days a, left. You saw the mentality with uh, Harry Kane too. You know, Harry Kane to his own detriment, and I have a really bad feeling that Harry Kane is going to play this coming Sunday with a patched up ankle like he's had for the last couple of months, he's going to get injured and then England's Euro hopes get entirely derailed by their captain going into the tournament injured. What a common story that's going to be. But Harry Kane will play through pain. And like we saw that in the documentary last year, it was one of those teams we talked about on different weeks. He didn't like the Coco Lamella, didn't feel 100% going out into a training session. It didn't matter that Coco Lamella went out and got re-injured because he came back too early. He liked Eric Dyer because Eric Dyer was willing to strap himself up. He didn't particularly like that for Tongan and I think it was Alder Vial didn't want to rush themselves back. He didn't like that Ben Davies wasn't coming back ahead of time. He was almost making out to the medical team that these players were soft. Like That's the side of Mourinho that on the one hand, for guys who are willing to take the pain shot and just keep going, he's the guy you want in your corner, but he's probably not the manager you want if you need an arm around the shoulder. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that defines Mourinho. And there's a, there's a great story about that actually with John Terry when uh, John Terry was injured. One of the, it, I don't know if it was an inter- in, in an interview he said it, but essentially he was on the injury table and it was one of the most painful memories of his footballing career because Jose Mourinho came in and wouldn't even look at him, wouldn't even acknowledge him because he was on the injury table and he was his captain. That's, that's the side of Mourinho that often ends his careers at these clubs. And, you know, for all his good, there's a lot of bad for Mourinho as well. So that is Jose Mourinho. Goodbye to you. You are no longer the Tottenham manager. Will you be back to us soon? Let's hope you are. We'll take a quick break. Colm, Will, you're going to leave us from there. Cheers for that. Cheers, lads. Team 33. This is OTB Sports Radio. Hey, welcome back. So that is all we have time for on this week's Team 33. As ever, thanks to you for listening. If you want to listen back to that or any of the really good Super League coverage on Off The Ball over the last week or so, you can get everything in the OTB Sports app or check out the YouTube page, youtube.com forward slash off the ball as I said Filippo Clare is on there Gabriel Mercotti is on there uh, Andy Mitten is on there talking about Ed Woodward's uh, departure there's a great interview with Daniel Lambert from Bohemians talking about what this means for League of Ireland and why people should get more involved in the community based teams in the country rather than going over to England and supporting these monstrous clubs with gigantic budgets and shiny stadiums. They should really get involved in the community. I would advise everyone to get out and listen to that interview firstly and also support your League of Ireland clubs because they need you more than ever at this point in time. That is the show for this week. We'll be back again same time, same place next week. But until then, take away Johan. (laughs) 